Hello everybody, welcome back to episode 3 on Fear Street. I recorded the first two episodes last night and today I am recording the final one. Uh, I'm sorry if there's background noise, my neighbours are having their second obnoxiously loud barbecue in three days. So we're all very happy about that. So I've now finished watching all the Fear Street movies and I think this is the first time I actually saw the credits and realised that these are apparently based on R.L. Stein books. I assume loosely because the films are Certificate 18, suggesting that they put a lot more like adult stuff and gore and horror into them, which, whereas R.L. Stein stuff tends to be more like kid-friendly. With that being said, I don't feel bad about having, having not read those books, but if they are worth a read, do let me know and I will get into them. I need to trigger warn for this episode for drug use, sexual assault and lynching, which are featured predominantly in the 1666 plot and this movie picks up exactly where we left off with the second film that is with Dina reuniting the hand with the body of Sarah Fear and entering a flashback in which she is inhabiting Sarah Fear's body and reliving her memories. A lot of the characters in this flashback are played by actors who appear in the first two movies. So Sarah's brother Henry is played by Dina's brother Josh. Her friends are played by her friends from the 90s movie. But other people are also played by characters who appeared in the 1970s in the, the Camp Nightwing saga. So um, it is quite confusing. A lot of people have two names, so try and stick with me through this very difficult plot summary. And again, I will warn that there are going to be a lot of spoilers, so if you haven't already watched the movies, do go and do so, because they are very good, and I think you'll enjoy them, but I am going to spoil some of the plot. Although, as with my review of the second movie, I do have kind of a gripe in that the plot twists are kind of easy to see coming, but we'll get into it now. So at the start of this flashback, we're back with Sarah Fear. She's delivering piglets with her brother, Henry, and she apparently has a, a real talent for this kind of work. And Her dad comments on it and says that she'd be a good wife to Solomon Good, who recently lost his wife and child. And she says that Solomon is just her friend and that they don't want to get married. So this is obviously the forefather of Nick Good and William Good who we've seen in the previous two movies um, so I already have my suspicions about him having seen those films but she bags up a piglet to go and take to give him and while walking through the town she says hello to a bunch of characters who we've seen before but who now have different roles to play for the most part I'll be referring to them by their old movie name but there's a couple of major players whose name I, names I am going to change for convenience. Uh, for instance she passes like Simon and Kate uh, and they make it known that they have this plan to sneak off into the woods and drink alcohol so we see not a lot has changed in the intervening 300 years you know kids are still being kids. We meet uh, Ziggy and Cindy who are sisters in in the village and then we meet Sam, who is now, in this current time period, Hannah, the pastor's daughter. But it seems that there's a very similar relationship between Hannah and Sarah that there is between Sam and Dina, i.e. a lesbianic one. They appear to be kind of crushing on each other. Obviously, this isn't going to end well because she is the pastor's daughter and it is the 1600s. But Hannah says that she is also planning on coming along to this party and that she's going to go with Kate to get the magical special berries from the wood hag. 
these are apparently like berries that you use to party and later on these are revealed to be kind of hallucinogenic. She says she'll only go to the woods if Sarah comes with her, so Sarah promises that she will and then goes off to finish her errands. On the way, she bumps into uh, Tommy from the uh, Camp Nightwing saga, but he is now Thomas, kind of a town drunk slash doom prophet. He says he sees darkness in her and the devil is coming and various other scary things. So there we go. Uh, she goes all the way out into the woods to see Solomon, who lives in a house uh, a fair distance from the little village where they live. And he talks to her a little bit. It's very clear that they're friends. They think of each other very fondly. And he says that his brother says that he should move back into the town, that he can't make a go of it out in the woods on this patch of land he's chosen. But he's determined to make it succeed because this land is fertile and he knows that he can make something of it. He knows that she plans on sneaking out, like he knows what these kids are up to, um, and he seems a little disapproving and kind of worried for her, but she brushes this off. She then goes with Kate and Hannah to get the berries, which help you see a world beyond, so hallucinogenic fruit. They go out to the wood hag, or the widow, as they like call her as well. And there's various stories circulating about her. One is that she sacrificed her husband for eternal life. But Sarah says that she's heard that Widow Mary married a Native American man and was thus exiled from the village. And then later her husband died. So quite a tragic figure, sort of living on her own. Her existence kind of made me question the plot, mostly because of something they find in her house. So they're going to see the widow, but she's not in, and they start looking through all her stuff, looking for these berries. But Sarah finds uh, a box which has a book in it, and this is a book that has the mark of the witch on the outside of it. And when she opens it, it's all written like a weird cursive language that I couldn't read. But one of the pages is headed... A simple exchange and it seems to be a spell some sort of sacrifice and there's a picture of the devil on that page this book the origins of it are never explained it isn't really explained how mary came to have it and why uh, or why she hasn't destroyed it or anything like that so i feel like that's kind of a plot hole unless they're planning on making more movies because this one does kind of end with trailing threads that could lead into sequel land because she has not seen the mummy films, Sarah begins to read from the book and it appears to be a list of demons' names like Abaddon, Beelzebub and Satan. Mary then comes in and stops her and says that the devil lives in that book and it calls to Sarah from it. Uh, and that if she is not careful and if she doesn't resist, he will crawl inside her and consume her from the inside out. So this book is full of bad news bears. If Mary is so scared of it and views it as so evil... Why does she have it? Why hasn't she destroyed it, burnt it, buried it? Why is it just in a box on her shelf? But there we go. She makes them run away from the cottage and they leave, but having found the berries. So they, they go to the party. Everyone eats berries, drinks some sort of cider or ale, whatever. And they dance around the fire and have a good old time. Then a man, I think he's played by Peter from the original like 90s uh, Fear Street, like the first movie. But his name's Caleb. He grabs at Hannah and tries to kind of maul her, but Sarah intercedes, hits him, and then humiliates him in front of everybody, so he leaves. And Sarah and Hannah run into the woods, 
where they decide to make out and although Sarah is initially quite reticent um, they give him fairly quickly and it's very clear that there is this mutual attraction here and they really like each other. However they hear cracking branches in the woods and look up like scared that someone's seen them but there's no one there. But they're a little bit spooked so they head back to town and after sharing one more kiss which is seen by Thomas the drunkard um, they go to bed. However the next morning Sarah wakes up late and she can't find her dog which is the first sign that something sinister is going on. She also finds in her hair a scrap of the red moss uh, that played such a big part in, in the other films which came from a kind of branch crown that uh, Hannah was wearing so we see already that sort of elements of the past have started to creep in or rather elements of the future have started to be noticed in the past we've got this red moss we've got this devil symbol in the book we're seeing that the threads stretch back pretty far Hannah then comes to get her urgently and says something's wrong with her dad and this is when we see the biggest connection with the events of the first two films because her dad is in a trance and flies are buzzing around him as he chants about something that wants to be free or wants to be released. The subtitles were very vague on this but Hannah says that he doesn't seem himself and that darkness is looking out of him so like he is possessed but her mother is very religious and shuns medicine so they can't necessarily get help for him. Hannah then says that she can't see Sarah again, that she's worried that what they did has caused this wickedness and, and this curse to be brought on her family and she doesn't want any more part of it. And her mum then comes in and disturbs them and casts um, Sarah out into the town because Thomas has spread word of that he saw them kissing. Everybody knows now and she calls her an abomination and a lot of other nasty things. Sarah then returns to her dad who says that he raised her wrong and he raised her like a boy and gave her too much freedom and that her mother, who is long since dead, um, saw something special in this land, something kind of akin to, I guess, magic. He, he's sort of talking about how there's like something special within the earth and the trees and the water. Um, but he sees a strangeness in Sarah this is something that kind of goes further uncommented on whether she has any abilities or connections to the land. Unclear. The townspeople begin to notice that their town is basically hella cursed, but a, a blight appears to be on them. All of their food is rotting really quickly. Uh, Sarah's sow eats its own piglets in a truly grotesque scene and she beheads it because, you know, that, that's a bad pig. Can't keep that. The whole town is affected by this, everyone's food is rotting, the well has stopped like giving water, they can't get the bucket to come up, and then when they finally do, it's got Sarah's dead dog in it. So, it's not great. Thomas is skipping around babbling about how it's the end times, and witchcraft and devilry is upon them. Solomon comes out of the woods to see Sarah, and he gives her a knife sheath he made her as a thank you gift. And she confesses to him what happened with Hannah in the woods, which is like a big step and shows that she really trusts him. And she says that she believes that they were seen by someone or that maybe her father is right about her and she has a darkness in her and she has brought the devil to the town of Union. And he says that you can't just summon the devil without deciding to you can't do it by accident you actually have to sit down and decide to do it to extend a hand and then welcome him in 
And he tells her that if what happened with Hannah was a passing flirtation, it's harmless. But she confesses that she is in love with Hannah and he seems upset by this. They're interrupted by some screaming because the possessed pastor has locked a bunch of children in the meeting house with him. And we all know how this ends already, but oh dear. Uh, Solomon and some other dudes break in and they find that the children have been killed, their eyes gouged out and their bodies posed in pews as if listening to his sermon while the pastor, also without eyes, uh, is giving a sort of weird mumbly sermon from the pulpit um, and he does not seem amenable to being talked out of there. So when he goes for Sarah, Solomon stabs him with a garden fork and he dies. Everyone starts talking about witchcraft, which, fair dues, this is a fairly creepy situation. Uh, and they hold a meeting to root out the guilty. And we see kind of a montage of some of the children being checked for devil's marks. Solomon's brother, Elijah. So, you know, the other good, because there seems to always be two. Uh, talking about how he's going to root out the evil and find the source of it. And how a blight is on their town. Solomon seems to want everyone to just except that there's a rational explanation that it was the pastor who did this evil and he's dead. They don't need to look any further. I am hella suspicious of Solomon because I've been hella suspicious of all of the goods since the first movie. And I think in the first film, like looking back on it, there is a scene where Nick Good, the sheriff, arrests the janitor from the mall and locks him up and he's like, oh yeah, you spray painted something on the mall. And he's like, well, that's not my spray paint. And he says, well, it is mine. Which really heavily implies that he's framed him and he just doesn't seem like a nice guy. Um, and also, you know, we already know he betrayed Ziggy in, in movie two. So it's, it's not looking good for him. And I'm not just saying that with the benefit of hindsight. He has creeped me out since the first film. So there we go. Caleb then accuses Sarah and Hannah of being witches, I guess, to get back at them for not having sex with him. Everyone then begins to accuse them and they are seen spying through the window on the meeting and then chased. Hannah is very quickly captured, but Sarah runs away. Hannah is then assaulted semi-off-screen by Caleb and maybe also Elijah, Solomon's brother. Uh, the mob then goes to search the woods for Sarah, but she's hiding in town and makes her way to where Hannah has been chained up, awaiting hanging in the morning. She says to Hannah that everyone already believes that they're guilty, so it doesn't matter if they become guilty by summoning the devil to avenge them on the town. So... That's basically her plan. She's going to go back to the Widow Mary, take her magic book and use it to save both her and Hannah. However, when she gets there, the book box is empty and the camera shows us a bloody handprint on the side of it, which Dina doesn't seem to notice and which is like a really like, nice, chilling gesture. I, I really liked that and I love when films do that and they put stuff in that is just like something that the audience notices but isn't just an evil monster mugging for the camera for no reason it's actually a detail that dina could have noticed and there's a point to it being there but she just doesn't see it however she does fall down when scared by a bird and finds the body of the widow with her throat slit so clearly someone has killed her and taken the book she runs to solomon's house and uh, explains that she believes their town has been sacrificed to the devil, which is why the blight is on them, so that someone can gain power, which is kind of a huge leap, but 
it is what's happening. So she has guessed correctly and it does move the plot along. And then he says those fateful words, who else knows about this? If someone says that in a film, they're about to kill you because you're the only witness. But before he can do that, Caleb comes banging on the door looking for Sarah with a bunch of other men. And Sarah hides while Solomon tries to stop them searching the house, but they do anyway. Them searching forces her to crawl into the cellar. Obviously, this is the house that is wrongly thought to be the witch house in the, the 1970s film. Because this is the house, and Sarah quickly discovers, has the witch mark in the basement. So she finds the witch mark, a black goat's head, the book of spells, um, and a stone wall with only one name inscribed upon it. The one of the pastor. So... I kind of started putting things together quite quickly and came up with exactly what the movie was about to tell me, that the people who go mad and kill a bunch of people aren't being possessed by the witch. They're being sacrificed as part of some ritual. It's revealed that Solomon was the one who saw her kissing Hannah. He comes into the basement once the men are gone and realises she's found him out. Um, he says that he was sick of, you know, the bad fortune, losing his wife and child, struggling to farm, struggling to find the, the prosperousness that they were promised. And so he created the dark heart that we saw in the second film, uh, the sort of throbbing pustule in the basement. We see the creation of the witch's mark and the tunnels underground, which is kind of cool. And that Cyrus Miller was his chosen sacrifice. He tries to kind of justify this to her. He says, like, they're the same. They don't believe in the same rubbish that everyone else does. They just want to be free and prosperous. But Sarah's not having it. She stabs him. And then they have a little fight. Uh, she escapes into the caverns and he follows her. She finds the heart and is very creeped out by it. She runs and hides and then finds what will eventually become the outhouse exit from the second film and tries to climb up to the hole but gets dragged back down by Solomon. While they're struggling, she deflects a blow from the knife with her wrist. Chanty move. And her hand is partially severed and then fully severed when he pulls on it. Uh, and that gets dropped on the ground by the rock, so... This is how her hand came to be uh, what they thought was Satan's rock before. Sarah, who now only has one hand, finds her way to the meeting house exit. Just like in the legend, she emerges from the meeting house and sees Hannah. But before she can tell anyone what's really going on, Solomon comes up behind her, grabs her and says, I found the witch. Let's kill her. For some reason, she doesn't even try and tell anyone. She doesn't, like, scream, it's Solomon what did it. Look in his basement. She doesn't say anything. Maybe it's because she knows she won't be believed, but I would have still liked her to try. They march her and Hannah out to the hanging tree, and in order to protect Hannah from being hanged, Sarah confesses to everything, says that she bewitched Hannah and everybody else, and takes the blame fully on herself. Before Solomon hangs her uh, in front of the village, she tells him that the truth will eventually come out and she will haunt him forever until it does. She will ensure that it does happen. And then he kills her. And we find that her body is buried initially underneath the hanging tree, but then her friends like Kate and Simon and the other people from the other movies dig up her body and leave the stone in its place and then bury her out in the woods where they, I guess, had their party and were happy. 
and Hannah leaves her kind of moss branch circlet on the body, which explains how all the moss grows around where her body is. Although it doesn't explain how it grows all around where her hand is. Some magic going on there, I guess. It's revealed that when people touched her bones with blood on their hands and saw visions, they were seeing the truth. And from this I kind of extrapolated the killers are after them, not because of it's the witch's will or they've touched the bones and pissed her off. It's because they know the truth and to protect the good family, anyone who knows the truth has to be destroyed. At the end of the flashback, uh, Dina sort of snaps out of it and hears sirens because uh, Ziggy has phoned Sheriff Good at the end of the previous movie to come and help them. But obviously they now know he's the bad guy, so it's not good. He pulls a gun on her and Josh and they run away into the woods and she explains to Josh that Good is evil, which is way too on the nose, but I'll allow it. They circle round and steal his police car, which is amazing. It was so funny to watch him just like turn around like, oh shit, they done stolen the car. Uh, and they drive off and it basically confirms the theory that I'd kind of come up with while watching this, that the killers are sacrifices and so are the people that they kill and that all the goods, like from first son to first son, have been performing this ritual and adding names to the wall to create their own fortune. So like that's why he's the sheriff, that's why his brother is the mayor of Sunnyvale and for some reason, it's also why Sunnyvale is doing so well. And this kind of felt a little bit like a plot hole to me because it seems like Sheriff Nick is more in, like, shady side. He's, like, the police there and he doesn't seem to be, like, ruling the roost in any meaningful way. So what are all these sacrifices in aid of just so he could be a small town sheriff? So I was kind of prepared for there to be another twist when it was actually his brother and he although he knew about it had kind of been estranged from his family and so his brother was the one who was making the sacrifices that didn't happen the film went straight down the line and was just like nah nick's the bad guy and i was kind of aching for there to be another twist and there and there really wasn't so that was a little bit disappointing josh and dina realized that now that they know the truth for themselves the killers will be after them although for some reason they are only after dina i guess because she's the one who had the vision it doesn't matter if you verbally tell someone the truth it, it just you know you have to have had the visions for the killers to come after you so that's unfortunate all the killers are now after her again including sam they return to ziggy's house and tell her the truth she is pissed as hell because Obviously, she liked Nick and had already been betrayed by him once, but now she's been betrayed by him again. So uh, that's unfortunate. It does, however, show a little flashback of when he said that he's like a legacy and his family depend on him. So I'm glad I wrote that down and underlined it because I felt like it was very portentous. But anyway, Ziggy sort of freaks out and then Dina says they need to kill Nick. Killing Nick is how they end all of this because if there are no more goods doing the ritual it all ends. So they untie Sam, knock her out and drive. They go somewhere to like try and make a plan. For some reason, maybe because they just needed extra characters, they go to the address on the business card that Josh was given by the guy he helped escape from police custody, uh, who is the janitor from the mall. I know I recognised him from somewhere. Uh, his name is Martin, and when they're like, hey, do you want to help us kill the sheriff? He's just like, okay, let me get my coat. 
because he doesn't like that guy either. And later on does find evidence that he had been framed by him, even though that was fairly obvious from the exchange seen in the previous film. They go to the mall and form a plan that they will use the whole, like, they're drawn to the blood thing again to get the killers to go into stores so that they can shutter them in and kind of make them act like jail cells. And then Ziggy suggests they pull a carry on Nick, again, echoing back to the second film and her experiences there, where they dilute some of Dina's blood in a bucket of water and then tip it over him so the killers will attack him. They give some, like, speeches about how Shady Side can overcome anything and all that stuff. And then they rig them all up with a bunch of black lights uh, so that in the ensuing fight you can kind of see who's covered in blood because it fluoresces green under the light, which is a nice touch and kind of helps to keep track of who's got it on them and where. They hear people coming into the mall and get to action stations, but it's two cops who are investigating the stolen cop car and the break-in. Uh, however, the killers then attack, killing both the cops very quickly, and it's clearly like going on, the plan is coming into action. They lock four killers away, uh, the skull killer, the camp killer, the milkman, and some guy with a sort of weird leather face cone. I have no idea where he was meant to be from, but they lock him up, but Ruby and some other killers are still on the loose, so they know they don't have long. Ziggy goes to confront Nick, and when he gets close to her, she unleashes the bucket of blood all over him. However, once they've unleashed the monsters, he grabs Ziggy to use as a hostage, which causes her to get covered in the blood water that's all over him. Uh, he gets stabbed in the back by the skull killer, and Ziggy is able to escape, but the killers are now after both of them, and it's all just a great big clusterfuck. So Dina spills fresh blood to distract them, and then runs into the back area of the mall, drawing them away, while the others hide in a, sh in a store. Nick pursues her into the tunnels or runs in there ahead of her. I was kind of busy eating soup at this point, so I may have missed that part. But they both end up in the tunnels and go down a vent underneath the floor to get into the tunnels that were once under the camp before the mall was built on top of the camp. Josh has this amazing brainwave. They use super soakers to spray blood water on the killers so they start attacking each other, which is very funny to watch. Um, and then Sam gets loose and runs into the tunnels after Dina. And Babyface Killer and Ruby show up to attack um, Josh and the others. He decides to pursue Sam, Dina and Nick with an axe to try and help her. And um, it's sort of like a, a really long chase sequence where everyone's chasing each other and fighting different people. But eventually... Uh, Dina gets down by the heart and Sam attacks her. However, she looks into Sam's eyes and the power of love gives Sam a moment of clarity, which I didn't really appreciate because it kind of implies that the other killers didn't care enough about the people that they were killing. Even like the pastor didn't care enough about the innocent children he was cutting the eyes out of and Ruby didn't care enough about her boyfriend or her friends to not kill them. And it kind of makes them seem bad, even though they were meant to be innocent victims up until this point, but apparently not as good as Sam is, because Sam is able to resist for a few seconds, which is long enough for Dina to knock her unconscious. So there we go. She's then attacked by Nick, who stabs her in the chest, and they 
struggle as the previously killed killers begin to reform. Dina then forces Nick to touch the heart and he is assaulted by visions of all of the victims. He hears Sarah Fear talking to him about how the truth will come out and she will haunt his family forever. And then she appears in front of him and stabs him in the eye. Although outside of his delusions, this is revealed to be Dina stabbing him in the eye. Um, but he goes down and he's dead. The killers dissipate into a great big horde of flies and the heart turns into a puddle of goo on the floor. It's all over. Everything's fine. Sam comes round and Dina opens her shirt and reveals that she made a stab vest out of paperbacks. I assume that these are like R.L. Stein paperbacks because we saw them, I think, in like the bookshop at the beginning. Uh, and I didn't really register who they were by or what the titles were, but it would have been a nice nod if that was the case and I just missed it. They watch as the witch's mark in the floor just kind of erases itself and all of the names on the sacrifice stones disappear as well. So it's like nothing was ever there. They exit the tunnel, like walking down a ways, and appear in a house which I think is in Sunnyvale because it's sort of fancy and posh. And on the wall is a family tree of uh, Solomon Good. So I was like, oh, is this the mayor's house or is it the sheriff's house? I'm unsure as to who lives here. But as they leave, they see a guy back out of the driveway and get hit by a garbage truck. Uh, so whatever luck or good fortune or whatever was protecting Sunnyvale, it's not there anymore. And this is confirmed by uh, when we skip ahead a little while, there's a broadcast on the television which Josh is watching, about the sheriff being a serial killer and his family being questioned but denying all knowledge. Which I didn't find that satisfying because, like, even if they didn't know, they're still descended from the goods. They were still benefiting from this. I felt like something more should have happened to them, but there we go. Dina and Josh are enjoying life in the new and improved shady side where no one is cursed anymore and, and life seems to be able to get better. Uh, Ziggy returns the book she stole from Nurse Lane to a much older Nurse Lane. So they've got some closure. And Josh meets the real-life queen of air and darkness who goes to his high school. So he's happy. Dina and Sam then go out into the woods and carve a memorial for Sarah Fear um, to like give her closure and to acknowledge her as the first shady cider. And then it's the end of the movie. We get the credits, but intercut with that, the camera goes on a little journey through the town, to the mall, into the tunnels underneath the mall, to where the book is sitting in the middle of the crime scene, and then some hands grab it and take it away. So it's still giving us the possibility of this book being used again, and potentially another curse or deal being made, whichever way you want to look at it. And that's the end of the movies. Now, I do think this one kind of suffered from being set in a more serious time period. Like, quite a lot of it is set in the past. There's less of that campy fun of, like, the retro soundtrack and the sort of colourful retro setting and, like, the snarky teenage characters from the 1990s or the kind of campy teen good fun of the 1970s. So 
this one isn't really as fun of a watch uh, for me. There's a lot of like exposition coming out, which is only to be expected because it's the third part. It kind of has to fill in all of those mysteries. I found it reasonably satisfying, although I'm still not entirely sure that I really buy that the sheriff was really gaining that much from doing this ritual or that it wouldn't have been necessarily like more interesting and more satisfying to have his brother taken down because I feel like it makes more sense if it's the mayor of Sunnyvale making sacrifices to keep Sunnyvale good and uh, prosperous whereas his sort of estranged brother is in Shadyside knowing the truth but not being able to stop it I think that's kind of a a more interesting story than the guy who kind of seems creepy from the first movie six hours later is confirmed to be the bad guy that just seems a little bit easy and a little bit of a damp squib really because you kind of get that bad feeling from him anyway and i think it's because he kind of looks like a child star from like the 1980s who just looks untrustworthy now is the best way i can explain it um so that was kind of a little bit of a letdown for me but otherwise i think it really managed to land the plane even if the story was quite predictable it still gave plenty of interesting twists and turns it was nice to see some things that you worked out for yourself being confirmed i don't know if i wouldn't necessarily call it like a horror because although it is quite gory I wouldn't say it was that scary, which I don't think necessarily horror has to be jumping you out of your seat scary, but it's not disturbing either. Um, it, it doesn't really manage to do that. I would say it's more of kind of a comedy mystery with horror elements than like horror films, which is fine and like it can be whatever it wants to be, but it kind of feels like more grown up Scooby Doo is how I'm going to explain it. It kind of feels like they took a plot that would have been quite surprising for like teen readers who sort of read those like R.L. Stein books or like the Louise Duncan, Lois Duncan stories, like those kind of pulpy teen horror paperbacks. They took kind of a plot from that and then they made it into a movie for 18 year olds plus, but those people are going to be able to work out the plots a lot quicker and they're not going to be as surprised and they're going to have more of a background of watching other films and reading other books that maybe younger readers won't have seen that many plots yet. So like the more experience of plots, the more you've kind of seen, the more easily you'll be able to guess the twists coming and kind of see how it all works. So aside from that, my disappointment, I still recommend all three films. I think they're pretty good. They're much better than the normal stuff that I see recommended to me on Netflix. So they're a good watch and you can steam through them quite quickly. And if you're not in the mood to kind of like deconstruct it or like work things out for yourself, they do a good job of just telling you what you need to know eventually anyway. So it's not, you know, confusing or difficult to work out. These would be great ones to like watch with friends and have some drinks and some pizza when we could get together and do things like that which was so long ago uh, but it, it would be kind of like a good party film for like a halloween get together uh, and it's it was definitely a lot of fun and, and quite enjoyable and really well acted so i give it a thumbs up 
In the meantime, if you'd like to recommend any other films to me, please do so. You can do so in the normal ways on the comment section on YouTube, which is probably where I'll see it the easiest. You can get in touch on Twitter or you can get in touch via the email address in the description box, which I check on an almost monthly basis. And in the meantime, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!